Welcome to the Leadership Mindset Podcast with me, Tony Brooks, where we look to revolutionize your leadership mindset by changing how you think and see your world, enabling you to do the right things and grow significantly as a leader. So welcome back to the Leadership Mindset podcast series, and I'm uh, incredibly pleased to have today Martin Ingham, who is the Chief Exec at the Motorpoint Nottingham Arena, uh, which is my home city. Uh, I saw Martin speak at the Nottingham City Business Club in April. thought it was just a fascinating talk about the journey Martin and his people have been through against sort of a lot of scepticism about the arena initially and done some amazing things which we'll be hearing about uh, during the podcast interview. Martin started off in finance at Coventry uh, Council and Nottingham City Council and moved to the arena in 2001, year after it started in 2000, and was eventually appointed chief exec in 2016. And uh, it's, it's just been an incredible journey since 2016 from what I found at the talk and Martin will be sharing with you today. So welcome, Martin. Thank you very much, Tony. Brilliant. Let's start with um, a little bit of bit of background, and I just very briefly touched on it there. But what has been your journey to where we are today? Then, uh, well, my background has always been finance, so I, I um, was always keen on the, the finance side of things, and went to work for Coventry City Council as a trainee accountant, and uh, had a great time there, learning in different departments, and then moved to Nottingham uh, to the City Council, um, relocated because. Uh, my wife had uh, got a job up here and was really enjoying my time at the city council, was the property services accountant, and then got a phone call from the chief executive one day who said, oh, there's a new chief exec at the ICE centre, would you fancy going and helping him out with some numbers? And I was initially sent here for a two-week secondment, and that was 21 years ago. So <laughs> that you can get, you get a gist that you know, I came in, the place was uh, in a bit of a mess to start with, There'd been a business plan to get the place built. Um, it had overspent the building project. The business plan said it was going to make a million pounds a year profit. And unfortunately, in year one, it made a million pound loss, which was a bit okay. of a surprise, an unwelcome surprise for everybody. And the fact that it was a surprise was a problem in itself. So they, they called in a full-time chief executive for the first time. And the first thing he said is, I need some help on the numbers. And, and that was how I ended up here. And basically what we did was we, we went through the, the, the company department by department, took it apart financially and put it back together again. As I say, those, those two weeks became a two year secondment. And then I was appointed finance director and we realized pretty early on that this, this fantastic facility that was bought, that was built for, for 42 million pounds was the subject of the largest lottery sports grant ever given out of 22 and a half million. Yeah. It was the country's first ever twin ice pad facility. So two ice rinks, two Olympic sized ice rinks under one roof, the very first time in the UK with a fantastic arena uh, as, as part of one of those rinks. It was a home for the professional ice hockey team, the Nottingham Panthers, who used to sell out every game in their old rink. But more importantly than that, we were the National Ice Centre. So we were a national sports centre. Um, Not Nottingham obviously being the home of Torval and Dean. The old ice stadium that was on site was, was falling to disrepair. So the council stepped in and, and made a bold move to to put on put in place, you know, a world class facility. And it was the first time that this country's ever had a world class 
ice sports facility. So that was always our raison d'etre. And the arena was was built on to be a home for the Panthers, but also you know, a home for world-class entertainment. And when we first started here, 2001, 2002, it was pretty clear to us that ice sports was, was a, a, a very important part of the business. But in terms of turning around the finances, it had to be driven by the arena because the arena's profitability, if we could get that part of the business working right, which was where the extra cash was going to come come in and, and meet help to meet the very, very high operating costs of a facility that is now, you know, our rebuild value now is 155 million. Yeah, wow. Um, which is, you know, it's a hugely complex facility. It's a fantastic building, but very, very complex and very expensive to run and maintain. So that was the plan. And we spent the next few years learning the entertainment business. Myself, chief executive at the time, Jeff, Jeff Huckstep, brought me in. We worked very closely. We brought in uh, a general manager, Donna, from, from Hull, who had an iSports background. And we gradually built the team to be a team that had a lot of experience in different areas. But we were all a little bit new to, to the world of, of live entertainment. And we built those relationships with the promoters. and. You know, it's, it's very difficult for for a city to to build an arena that's never had arena type shows coming in here. I mean, obviously Nottingham was, you know, had the fantastic Rock City, which was you know a destination for all sorts of bands, um, and it also has the concert hall. It's been here for a while, but those capacities are around about the sort of two thousand, just just over two thousand, and to start to attract artists that were capable of bringing in ten thousand people was it, it was a different market. And what we found was that we had to go out there and build relationships with the promoters, most of whom were in London uh, and some of whom were in Manchester. And it was part of the job was literally persuading promoters in London that, that Nottingham wasn't a suburb of Birmingham. Uh, and, and, I, and, I that, bet, and I bet they were quite dismissive, really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember bringing in one of the one of the big promoters and got, you know finally got him into the building. He looked around the arena and he was like, oh. I thought it was an ice rink. I said, well, there is an ice rink. There's an ice, there's ice under that floor. He says, oh, yeah, but this isn't an ice rink, is it? This is a proper arena. He's like, yeah. They're, they're, and there we go. You know, once you get people through the door and show them what the venue looks like, even empty, it's impressive. But when you've got seven, eight, nine thousand people in there on a show, it just sells itself. So, so our, our role really was to bring people. And to, into the building and and demonstrate what we could what we could deliver, and and, and thankfully that worked really well, and we, we we grew our reputation, and eventually we became a, an established venue on the on the arena map of of the UK. And in those days of the the two thousands and the you know into the into the twenty tens, the UK was a particularly strong market. It still is. But in those days, there were no options for promoters to go on world tours to South America or Asia. They were very, very young markets. It was really North America and Europe were the two establishment markets. And in Europe, the UK was by far the biggest. So we were we were growing at a good time to be a new venue. You know, Belfast had opened an arena. Liverpool have since opened an arena, obviously hosting Eurovision this week. Yeah, and, and so you know we, we're in that cohort of, of new venues coming along. Leeds have since opened, so 
and and there's going to be continual growth in in the UK. There are going to be new arenas springing up over the next five years again. So the O2 obviously came on board. So time of very great excitement, great growth in the UK uh, live market, and and we were we were faced with some some those big financial challenges. You know, how do you turn a business around from losing a million pound in its first year? And we got control of the costs. But then we realized very quickly that the the way that you could, the only way forward for us was to grow the business. There was, you, you get into the council, you know, sometimes councils talk about making cuts and because that's the, that's the mindset of the public sector, which I'd come from. But I, but we realized very quickly that we couldn't cut our way out of the financial problems. We had to grow our way out of them. Totally. And so yeah. from, I think from the, that first year that we were here, it was three million turnover. Uh, and this year, just finished, I think we're going to be reporting in excess of 20, 20 million. So we have successfully grown. But the big challenge with running a facility like this is, is that, you know, your costs just rise inexorably. And the interesting thing that you know people sometimes don't quite grasp is, although we're a, an arm's length council company and we're, we're in a, a commercial category, the purpose of this building was never to be making huge profits to pay over as dividends to our, our shareholder, the city council. This, this building was always built as a community asset. The ice sports that we provide, you know, are now, you know, the amount of ice we provide has been far greater than the old ice stadium ever provided. And, and the dream was always to, to provide, you know, to produce another Torval indeed. We haven't quite managed to do that, but what we have done is sent skaters to the olympics every year to the winter olympics every four years we've got a junior british skating champion who who skated at the um at the world junior championships a few a few months ago so we're bringing you know we've got synchronized skating teams who are champions of, of the uk at every age at every level so we've produced lots of fantastic skaters but just as importantly are the the 120,000 people who come skating here for public skating sessions just for fun, or the 250 kids in the Nottingham Ice Hockey Club who come here most weeks of the year, or the speed skating club. It, it's what we are here for is we're here for the community, but we're also here to do things that aren't related to people just wanting to skate for, for a hobby or for a profession. So... We bring in 95 schools every year to get those kids on the ice. And I I love seeing those kids on the ice because when you see kids who are primary school age and their teachers are constantly, you know, teachers are teaching you. You, you're, you, you, you know, hopefully you look up to your teachers and you respect your teachers because they know more than you do. But actually, when you put a, a six-year-old kid and a, and a 30-year-old teacher on the ice together, they start at exactly the same point. And invariably, the six-year-old kid becomes a better skater in the first few minutes and hours than the teacher. And the, the confidence that that gives to those kids to be better than their teacher at something is is phenomenal. And it's a joy to behold. And, it, and that's part of that. A big part of what we do here is to be part of the community, giving kids confidence, and, and what's fantastic is that some of those kids who came and learned to skate on the school's programme are now working here for us. So, yeah. again, you know, that 
providing employment. We we have 160 odd permanent staff and over a thousand casual staff who now work here. And that's when you look at what we were built for, that journey, you know, we were okay, so we lost a million pounds in its first year, but we've we've now sort of got to that point where we're consistently breaking even. And that's all it was ever intended to do. The reason we were built is for sporting outputs, for cultural outputs, to get the stars like Beyonce and Ed Sheeran on the doorstep of, of Snenton and St. Anne's. I mean, yeah. you know, those 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 people and those kids can literally step out of their front door and, and be and see you know, superstars like that, which is fantastic. But it's it's the social social economic benefits as well. And it, and it's just the pure GVA, the, the gross value added that we add to the city. Yeah, we, we, no, absolutely. We, we put forty million a, a, a year into the local economy from the the, the events that we that we host, and you know, over over the years, the council I think initially invested sixteen million into the facility, and by twenty twenty five, that will have returned a billion pounds, which is a truly phenomenal amount of money. And and when you talk about the journey. You know, that for me is the journey. The journey is the council started off with an idea of putting £16 million in over the years. Look at all the outputs, you know, and as part of our 25th anniversary, I'm sure we'll come on to that. But, you know, we've got lots of ideas about really celebrating what's what's been delivered. Yeah, no, it's, it's a brilliant story. And, and as somebody who's, I'm like you, actually, I'm originally from the West Midlands. I've been in Nottingham uh, just around about 25, 26 years now. <clears throat> so I remember the uh the arena starting and what have you and i've you know i took my daughter to see beyonce i've been skating on the ice rink i watched the panthers occasionally and so you know for me i really appreciate all of that you said there but i guess you know when you start talking about some of those stories around the 95 schools that come and the kids that get on the ice skating rink and and the thing is when you talk about you know growth in confidence in that area that confidence uh, actually helps and builds in other areas and it's a wonderful story not not just the financial story from a from something that was as you said um, making a one million loss to something that's that's brought that um sort of level of return back for the council and and the community but as you say it's, it's more about it being part of the heart and soul of nottingham isn't it and i think that's yeah. the wonderful part of it for me and that's why i enjoy going there in, in its many different facets as well i mean i've seen loads of great gigs at, at nottingham arena over the years and uh yeah it's just it's just a brilliant story really i mean i was going i was going to ask you about some of the key highlights on the journey for you um if you would share a few of those they might be big shows it might be big bold moves that you've made that have been successful but if you were to share a, a couple of highlights on that journey what would you say they would be martin yeah so so i think that there's always a temptation when 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 you're asked about your highlights that you do focus on you know the shows and we you know we talked about beyonce ed sheeran did his first ever arena show here oh uh, right okay i'm appreciating yeah that. that was that's that's an interesting story so he was due to go and play at rock city and and dhp who run rock city george akins and, and the team up there uh, they they also promote shows and and they rang me up and said look could we bring Ed Sheeran and this was at a time when he was just breaking as a as a successful artist like, yeah and they said well we don't want to do a big arena doesn't want to do a big arena show 
because he want we just want to grow him from the the sort of the two thousand caps that he's been playing. We'd like to do like a four thousand cap layout and just get him used to the concepts of playing in bigger rooms. Okay. So I'm like, yeah, yeah, we'll do that. So he set it up for about a four thousand, five thousand capacity, and he went on sale. It just went bananas. I mean, it just just flew out the door. So I rang down the promoter up and said, uh, that's just sold out in, instantly. I said, do you want to open up any more? So he went back to management. Yeah, we'll open up a bit more. So we opened a bit more. Then five minutes later, I rang him. So that's all sold out. Do you want to open up any more? <laughs> yeah, we'll open up a bit, bit, bit more. And we just kept opening it and eventually played to a full capacity. And he came to the show and he saw the full arena capacity and he was like, oh, crikey, that's big in it <laughs> and, and i think he was a bit he was a little bit worried about doing that first show as you would be you know in front of all of those people for the first time and as it turned out he went on stage it was uh halloween he dressed as chucky he did, a, he did a fancy dress outfit and he went on stage and he smashed it and he came off stage and said that was absolutely brilliant and he's since then he's only ever played arenas and stages so that's a great that's a great one i i saw him i've only seen him once at um in a tent at reading festival with about god i don't know about maybe about 300 two or 300 people in there so yeah. what is the, what is the capacity of nottingham marina now then martin well it's well so the maximum capacity the biggest show we've ever done was metallica at 10,333 yeah, okay. 10, people but we could have yeah. got more but they had this big massive stage so when people people ask me that question all the time, what's the capacity? It really does vary on the layout of the show. So yeah, normally, yeah. For, normally for a seated show, it's about seven, seven and a half thousand. But then Elton John did a, a show where he literally put a piano on the stage with some musicians at the side and sold all seats all the way around because the seats go behind the stage. Yeah, yeah. So most of those seats are usually off sale, but depending on the layout of the show, somewhere in the region up to, up to about ten, ten thousand is what we normally do. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. So that, so that was obviously a big highlight for us. So the, the shows are the highlights, but probably the, sh- the shows that are the biggest highlights for us are the ones that we really get involved in the planning and the involvement. So, you know, we had Michael Bublé here on Sunday and Monday. We, we're an empty box. They, they rock up at, at, at six o'clock in the morning. They load in all the production. They build it up. They have a sound check and then he goes on stage. It's all yeah. their kit. And then they take it away. So, we don't have really much to do with that. We do plan it, obviously. But the sh- but the events that really take a lot of planning. So we, the, the week prior to that, we had the World Ice Hockey Championships here. Team GB playing five other teams. And that was that event was 11 months in the planning. And that was detailed, probably hundreds of detailed phone calls, comments, emails and uh, meetings with the IIHF, the International Ice Hockey Federation, Ice Hockey UK all sorts of people, a huge team effort. And at the end of that uh, event on Friday night, uh, we were on, the, our team was was centerized. GB had, had won the gold medal, big celebrations. And then our team went on for, for a team photo. And that, that celebration, that moment of satisfaction of having delivered a brilliant event of 15 ice hockey games over a week, which involved building changing rooms in the facility, which involved liaison with the top man of ice hockey in the whole of the world, which involved um, the Stanley Cup coming over, the NHL trophy to the UK for the first time in many years. 
when you bring all that together and you've got people going away saying your building is wonderful but your team are outstanding yeah that's that's the bit when you talk about a highlight that's what is a highlight when and this guy goes all over the world watching ice hockey and for him to say your team are outstanding that's 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 why that's why we do it and that's why those sorts of events i mean we have we had the dalai lama here for four days of teachings and we had the opportunity as a team to go and have a, a meeting with him and um, like a, a face-to-face meeting and we sat there and he, and he gave a little speech and then we could ask questions that's that's a highlight for me to be in the same room as somebody somebody like that and he was he was asked, he was asked a question about china and this is a time when you know People are uh, Chinese were not happy about him coming here to the city, and he just said, "You know, he was asked about China. He just said, look, you have to talk to people who have you have disagreements with.' You know, he didn't use the word enemies. He said, if you have a disagreement with somebody, you have to talk to them. You don't, you don't, you know, you don't shout at them. You have to engage because nobody listens. You only, people, you only take advice from your friends." You don't take advice from your enemies. And well, what a wonderful sentiment. And and so to hear the Dalai Lama talk about, you know, how to take relationships forward with a, with, you know, with a country like China, that's a highlight. But yeah. the, other, the other highlights for me are really around, it, it isn't what happens in the arena because that's somebody else's show. That We just facilitate that. The highlights for me are when you have an idea and you look to try and build something you try to build take that idea put bones get get the flesh on it and talk to your team and then you see it being delivered down the line and that that can be any any sort of idea but probably the most successful one we've had is around merchandising so yeah love the story about that at the um nottingham city (laughs) business club event yeah yeah so so in an arena, when you go to a show, you'll see merch. You'll see the band's merchandise on sale in the foyer, various places around the arena. So that's sold usually by a concession company. So we previously outsourced that. The merchandise company deliver a hundred thousand pounds of the stock. The concession would sell it on behalf of the venue, and the stock goes back, and the venue takes a cut, and the concession goes up. So. We saw this, and I was trying to—I was trying to bring in a manager for our ice sports shop, and I wanted a, a a manager who could come in and really understood retail. So, but I couldn't make the numbers work by just ice sports because the turnover in the shop was so low. So I thought, well, if we bring merchandise in house, which is something we've been talking about, and I split that role with the ice sports shop, I could afford to pay to attract a, you know, a decent salary to get a decent manager in, and I did, and I recruited Phil. And from day one, all he kept talking about was merchandise. So I would say, no, 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 you need to talk about, you need to focus on the ice sports shop. The merchandise is just easy. They just bring the stuff in. We sell more of it. <laughs> and actually, actually, he was, his team was so good at it that we, we saw a, a big increase in how much we sold by bringing a much more professional approach. And then we then realized we could sell our services to other venues. So they were just building the Glasgow uh, Hydro at that point at, for the Commonwealth Games. And we tendered that and we won that contract and then liverpool arena where the um, eurovision is so our team are actually in liverpool selling eurovision merch at the moment this week oh fantastic uh, <laughs> yeah yeah so so our team 
went into those two venues and we started to sell merchandise there. And then the real game changer for us was when the O2 rang up, uh, the GM of the, of the O2 rang me up and said, Martin, can you come down and talk to me about merchandise? So me and Phil went down and, and they outsourced their merchandise concession to us. And then, you know, as, as at the current time, we're at 21 venues, 23 venues, I think now around the UK and Ireland. But we've also then expanded that into selling in festivals and, and stadium gigs. So we're selling at Tottenham for Beyonce. This year, we've just done three Bruce Springsteen shows in the Royal Dublin showground. So this thing, you know, we're going to download, which is, which is the biggest festival for, for merchandise in the I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to be there celebrating my 60th birthday next, oh, next, <laughs> make sure you buy a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> I will do. But so, and, and what that, what that whole business has, has moved from is from just the concept of bringing in house something that we, where we merely took a product and sold it on behalf of somebody else. Download, we now design, manufacture and, and sell ourselves that product range, which involves us working with Live Nation, who own the festival, the biggest entertainment company in the world. And to be able to, to have taken that one idea and then see that delivered at what will hopefully be a record-breaking download this year. That's that's when you get a, that. That's that's the highlight for me. That that concept. That's the best example of us taking an idea and growing it and growing it and growing it and and succeeding in it. And that's that's the joy of it. Um, I, I, no, I was going to say, I thought that was a phenomenal story and I just had no awareness or knowledge. And there's probably a lot of people in our city and certainly beyond that have no awareness of, of that amazing um, success story with that, um, Martin. And the one thing that you, one of the, the phrases you use, I really hooked into when you did your talk at Nottingham City Business Club and I referenced it in a LinkedIn post just shortly afterwards when you you spoke about being I think you said you you know about being risk aware rather than risk averse yeah and yeah. and that seems to me to be part of that you know that uh, a lot of people would probably hit challenges with a with um the idea of starting to um first of all do merchandising um you know in-house but then start supply to other venues and i guess yeah, you've got the yeah. challenges practically but mindset wise as well as well where you just hit bricks and you probably think nah, you know there's probably uh, there's too much risk involved but your philosophy of being risk aware i guess rather than risk averse applies to something like that doesn't it yeah i mean quite early on we we always had a philosophy we, we were constantly being disappointed by contractors Okay. Whether that, whether that was cleaning or whether it was IT or whether it was, you know, whatever it was. So, so quite early on, we, we made some fairly bold steps to, you know, bear in mind where we were financially to, to take on the, the extra costs of, of employing more staff in those areas and take, bringing them onto our books. You have to be fairly confident that you're going to, it's going to be a success. And, and, and we, we did that and they were successful. And what we found was that we've got, if we employed good people and we managed them well, then we were better at it than a lot of people who were out there. Right. And the point was, the point was, is that you've got control. You, you, if if it's not right, then there's no one else to blame. You, you you don't you don't shout at somebody who shouts at their staff. 
we're shouting at our own staff or we're encouraging our own staff or we're you know we're we're training our own staff so so where things were wrong we it was up to us we took responsibility to fix them and that model had, had been successful as i say in, in in cleaning in conversions crew in it in hr so we we had a, we had a, a model of success over 10 years of doing that so merchandise really felt to us like another reasonable step what we didn't know at the time was that that was then going to expand and and i remember the first conversation about going and, and selling that service to to the hydro and we you've got to make a leap of faith you know you've you've got it we we've not done that in another venue there were all sorts of questions that we looked you know that we were asking but you've you've got to go into that room and make that pitch you know confident in the knowledge that there are other companies there who who have been doing it for a lot for a longer yeah. time and, and you know we were successful in that one you know there, there were i remember the first time we went to pitch for festival work and we were really in the <laughs> we were really in the dark we we had no information we had no data they shared no data with us and we had to really put together a model that we thought would work and actually we were miles off you know first first festival pitch we made was was garbage um <laughs> and but we kept growing the venues because we knew the venues so we'd grown the venues and then we had an opportunity and, and this is another lesson really for us in, in business is that you know, when you, whichever sector you work in, it's generally a small world and you never burn your bridges. You always learn, you talk to people, you build those relationships. Because even though the first pitch we made to Live Nation was garbage, we're now their merch partner, you know, you know, 10 years later doing, doing the biggest festivals in the UK. So they had the the good grace to to not discount us because we didn't look like what we you know that we knew what we were doing in that in that first one because it was a, it was a leap. But what we've done is build that knowledge and build that. And in terms of the risk, the risk aversion, you can't grow without risk. You you can't you, right. you you know opportunities that present themselves by definition. There's never a sure thing. If if ever an opportunity presents itself as a sure thing. Then it's probably not very, it's not a great opportunity or it's not a very yep. potentially lucrative opportunity. Right so point. Most, most opportunities have got a risk associated with them. If you haven't, you're probably not even worth pursuing it. So, because there's no such thing as a sure thing, right? It's, yep. it's, you know, you've always got to be able to take a risk. Now, do you take silly risks? Absolutely not. Do you take big risks? Absolutely not. So that we've never, we've never ventured, if you look at your risk matrix, you know, we've never ventured into the really unlikely elements and we've never ventured into the really big numbers, risk or return, because we can't afford to take to, to gamble with with with, with our money. Yeah. So we've never seen it as a gamble. There is a potential risk of loss because that's that's what a risk is. But we've always made sure that those were were manageable losses. And we've and we've never taken sort of three fairly brave decisions all at the same time so you, you you mitigate your risks by by i suppose um there must by profiling those risks and making sure that you you never got too much uh, at, at stake but as you learn you you get a feel for the business and i think that's the that's the key to it is we developed an expertise in a business that not many people had expertise in 
we found a niche and then we kept driving through that niche and that niche became you know a wider and wider doorway and now we're driving through you know gates to a to a huge mansion but what was really only a crack you know the gates open a, a tiny crack but you you can't do that straight away in one fell swoop you can't go smashing through them with a you know with a with a big 10 ton truck you've got to gradually open those gates because otherwise you put yourself at, at, at too much risk I love that. It's like it's like stepping stones, isn't it? And um, when I talk, you know, my work about um, growth, personal growth, and that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about growth and, and with growth. There are risks. There are mistakes to be made, everything else. And I think it's about money. It's pushing yourself out of your comfort zone as an individual and, a, and an organization, but not putting yourself into, as you were saying, incredibly high risk areas, I would suggest. I, and I think it's that starts take stepping stones of growth, take risk. Don't, as you said as well, I think that's a great point about not having too much risk going on in different areas at the same time. Um, yeah. And so managing that. But and, and I think the other thing as well, Martin, which I'm sure you buy into, there's a risk in staying where you're standing still anyway. So there's going to be, oh. as you said, there's always risk and opportunity, but there's risk in standing still. So risk is there anyway. And I think often people, who don't want to go through change, I, I think they don't really take that on board that standing stills risk in itself, you know. So it's uh Yeah, I, I think that there comes a point as well, Tony, where you know people who are who are worried about taking risks maybe just dissect it and analyze it to death. It, there comes a point, you know, if you're gonna do a parachute jump, it doesn't matter how many times you check your parachute, sooner or later you've actually got to jump out of the plane. <laughs> and by all means check your shoe and yeah maybe check it two or three times but on the 28th time of checking your shoe you know that that becomes pointless that, that there comes a point after somebody an expert behind you check your shoe you apparently your, your, your instructors check your shoe you're good to go now is the time that you personally have to jump out of that plane and and that's what you've got to do and and don't don't overanalyze and be you've got to be nimble as well and so that's that's the bit that's a bit scary i think for for a lot of people is sometimes you do have to make a decision pretty quickly and you don't have time to write a 27 page report or do a an extensive swot analysis and and you know analyze it to death because actually somebody's on the end of the phone and they're saying here's this opportunity i need an answer by close of play today and you're like okay and then that's when you go away and you, you've, you've built that expertise, but you've built a team and you sit around that table and you go, OK, how does everybody feel about this? And logically, it seems OK, but we maybe we haven't had time to, to work it through into the nth detail. But you know what? How do we all feel in our gut? Does this sit comfortably with all of us? And invariably, you know, we, we, don't, we don't take every every opportunity that comes our way. But I would say we probably take about 75, 80 percent of the opportunities that come our way. And some of them haven't worked out. You know, yeah. there, there's, there's a venue we work in that has made small losses for us over a period of time. And, you know, sometimes we look at each other and go, is it time to walk away? Well, actually, no, because that, that gives us other benefits. It gives us regional benefits and actually helps us support our festival business in that part of the world. So there are there are other ad hoc elements. And then, lo and behold, you know, a big event came along and that made the whole thing worthwhile. So yeah. you don't always get that, but 
being in the game sometimes is is important and and, and leaving those opportunities. And other, other people don't always operate in a, in a really risk-averse way. And if you're going to work with those people, then you've got to you've got to match your risk appetite to theirs. And yep. some of those some of those opportunities that were given to us as a one-off opportunity, and you know, if you don't take it, you, they'll probably not come back to you again for another five years. And you and you take that leap of faith. Guess what? You know, they're the ones that have paid off the most. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Yeah. Let me just um, you've started to touch on some of this already, but. What would you say are a couple of your um, most successful philosophies or approaches to leadership? And, and what are your, you know, what are your a couple of your core values as a leader then, Martin? What 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 is it at the heart of you as a leader? Um, hopefully I'm seen to be one of the team. You know, I, I think it's really important that when I'm down on the, you know, I know the staff down, on the, you know, I, I know the names of the, the cleaners and the stewards and people who are the casual staff. It's important that they see me around. It's if I'm walking across the foyer and there's a piece of paper on the floor, you know, the, our team, one of the guys, one of our managers put, uh, put a note up on by the signing in book the other day. It said, the standard that you're prepared to walk past is the standard you're prepared to accept. Ooh, and I, that and I, I really love, I really love that. And it, yeah, you know, like if I walk across the foyer and there's a piece of paper on the floor. If I if I walk past it, then what sort of you know what's what's sort of example is that I should be picking that piece of paper up and I do. So for like me, I've, I've got to be I've got to be one of the team. Um, you can't be one of the team because you've got to sometimes make decisions that affect people in the ways. But you've got to be. I think from from their perspective, they've got to see you as one as one of as being on their side. Yeah. Um, so that that's important. You've got to be consistent. You've got to be seen to be fair. That's really hard sometimes. Uh, that's probably one of my biggest frustrations is that sometimes some of the some of the really good decisions we make about caring about people you can't ever get the credit for because it's confidential and yeah, yeah. can't be hard. And and I, I, that's that really frustrates me sometimes when I see people maybe having a bit of a moan about something or other and, and and feel like they're being hard done to and not realizing that we we do treat people well we do treat people fairly and consistently but sometimes you can't take the credit for it and and, and share that information with people so that is, that's a frustration but yeah I, I, for me i'm a delegator uh i'm an interesting delegator because i'm a delegator but with a quite a i still like to keep a, a close eye on it so i'm not in, I'm hopefully not interfering. I'm not sure they'd all agree with me. <laughs> but but uh, for me, I've got a great team. I let them get on with it. I'm not. I'm not somebody who is going to in their one to ones will be going through a, a you know twenty five list of, of things that they're going through. For me, I'm here. My door's open. If you've got a problem, I'm, I'm letting you get on with it. You want to come to me for advice. You want to come to me with a problem. You want to come to me just for a chat. You want to come to me and, and vent and rant. That's what I'm here for. That's my job. Um, one of my team is uses that particularly, particularly, uh, you know, the opportunity to to vent their frustrations, and then he'll go away saying, "Oh, thanks for that. I realise I just vented at you, but I feel a lot better now." 
And we all we all need to do that sometimes. And sometimes we don't need necessarily a fix to the problem. We just want an ear, don't we? And and I think it's yeah. great that you make, you make yourself available in all in all those different yeah. ways. Yeah, I, it's an interesting business hours because we do work. Everybody works hard, but we work hard in really weird times of the day and the year. So, you know, in the last five days, I've got home at eleven o'clock at night three times. You know, with shows, you know, a lot of our staff work overnight on conversions. People are coming in at five in the morning. People are finishing at three in the morning. And it can be consistent. You know, we can be working, some of our teams can be working through two weeks straight. And, yeah. and it's, and it's, and it's really hard. And sometimes that, that cumulative effect is really tiring. And sometimes that presents its ways in, in people getting frustrated for no good reason. And, and that's really, I think, where our culture of the organization is. That's fine. You know, if frustrated, we'll deal with it. We'll support you. And you know, hopefully after a few days off, they'll, they'll come back and they're still smiling. And, and this business is, is odd. We, when we recruit, we've moved, interestingly, we've moved towards recruiting personalities with the necessary skills rather than somebody with with exceptional skills and experience who doesn't have the right personality or the right, it's not just personality, it's the right mindset and it's the right, and who is able to cope with the sheer weirdness of our, of our industry. And what we yeah. find is that people come here and some people leave, you know, we, we, we go through a recruitment process and we tell them about the business and, and they leave after a week and just say, I, this, this is this, this is madness. This, I, I can't cope with this. This, this, it's too random. There's too much. What, what do you mean? I've got this work plan, and suddenly you're giving me this job to do, and this has got to go on sale tomorrow. Well, I've got to do what? Can't it can't happen? And then all oh, people stay for twenty years, and because yeah. they just love the rough and tumble and the the randomness of of what we do, and it's it it, it is in some ways it's a drug. I guess you know I've been here twenty one years which is far too long in one job, you'd say, if you were writing out a career plan. But, you know, I love it because it because yeah. of its texture. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think I think in certain careers, um, people love the, I don't know, the unpredictable nature of it and what have you. And, and as you were saying then, I think, you know, for you, looking at personality mindset first, that sounds like it's been, um, you know, a bit, a bit a good path for you. But uh, I wanted to wanted to ask you another question. Um, and we talked a lot about the positive journey there. But if you were to share a couple of things that maybe have tripped you up or held you back on your journey, um, what would what would you what would you say they've been, Martin? Um, I think. There were, we, we had quite a tough start. I think coming into, coming into an organization that was going, that, that required wholesale change. That was, that was quite hard to start with. Um, my management style, I was, I was, I was a relatively inexperienced manager when I started here. And I, I learned quite quickly that sometimes you know what I, I when I saw decisions being made by my boss that I thought were quite harsh, quite quite ruthless. I quickly learned that some of my decision making was too soft. Yeah, okay. and actually, 
although and I learned I learned from him and I, and I thought you know you, you're trying to give people opportunities to 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 improve and you're trying to give opportunity people opportunities to develop and I think a couple of times if you've given I think generally if you've given somebody a, a lot of support and opportunities to improve and you don't get it and six months later you're not seeing anything you can give them another chance but the reality is if first time they don't do it and they don't develop then either then it's it's unlikely to happen, and for yeah. the good of the organisation and the good of that person, they probably need to move and go and find something that is they're probably in the wrong job, or they're a square peg in a round hole, whatever you however you want to do it. And I I think to me that initially as a relatively naive manager that that was something I found challenging to embrace, but but that that was a that was a lesson that I needed to learn. And, you know. The, the obvious one is the obvious one is COVID. I mean, COVID yeah. was 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 horrific. To take a building, a company with 170 odd people and and 1500 casuals and and shut it down overnight was really really challenging. To make over 100 of those people redundant and and all of the casuals redundant was sleepless nights. That was. But then it should be, shouldn't it? it? You should never be making decisions about people's futures without really worrying about whether you're making the right decision. No, so, that's tough. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, horrendous, especially at a time when there's so much uncertainty in the world. But at the end of the day, you've got a job to do. And that's, you know, that's a, that's a tough job. But Yeah, you know, and, it, and it is. Yeah, we've been through very, you know, various stages over the last 20 years where we have had to cut our cloth and, and we have, had on about three occasions, including COVID, we've we've had we've made a few redundancies altogether in one process, done a restructure, and and it, you know our general manager is one of the best managers I've I've ever worked with. People think she's you know, tough, and she is, but I've had conversations with her where you know she's saying, you know this is this is this is a horrible decision to make. I didn't get any sleep last night thinking it through. But that doesn't, in itself, all that's telling you is that you are really there. And your brain is whirring, and you're 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 making the right. You think you're giving it the the time, and the thought that it requires. But at the end of the day, you still come to the same conclusion that it is the right decision to do. And I think that that shows that what a good manager is. It's not about being soft or hard. It's about making the right decision. And if that makes you feel personally uncomfortable, that's absolutely fine. Yeah, that shows you, you know, you're human, doesn't it? But it doesn't exactly. mean it's still not the right decision to make. Yeah, that's, the, yeah, that's your humanity coming through. That makes you all the better manager. Yeah. The, the, the uh, fact that you're uncomfortable with a tough decision that affects a person's life, for me, that's, that's, that's a good manager. Yeah. No, no, I get that. That's brilliant. Okay. Well, just to, just to finish before we, we wind up, what's, what does the future look like then for, the arena and for yourself then what's um i know we've, we've touched on the 25 year anniversary but yeah what's um what does the future hold then martin well i think i think there's a really exciting future for the venue i, I think what we've done is we've, we've we've gone through that transformation you know we've come through we've, we've built the business into it into a into a successful established venue for, the, for live music and entertainment the iSports side of it is, is going really well. Then COVID came along and really kicked us sideways. We bounced back out of that really quickly. I mean, we were the 
33rd busiest arena in the world in 2022, which is just ridiculous. Yeah, amazing. Venues around the world. So we bounced back from COVID really quickly, thanks to a great team. We've now consolidated and really got our team up to up to great strength and able to um, able to really put ourselves back onto a better footing than I think we were pre-COVID. So that's fantastic. I think I think what we what we've got to do is we've just got to build. We've got to continue to grow. We've got to deal with the short-term financial headaches that we've currently got with you know inflation running at 10 percent that's a yeah. massive kind of effect for us and you know we've got to deal with that short-term blip but we've then got to grow to give ourselves that financial stability going forwards so the way that we'll do that is to continue to grow and continue to, to expand organically we've we've brought our you know merchandise in, uh, operation that's that's we've sold those services uh, successfully, we brought catering in house uh, about six, seven years ago. That's just had a record year. We've just turned over twice as much money as it did in its last year of being outsourced. Fantastic growth in that. We've got a brilliant product, so we're now looking at probably looking to outsource that a little bit more and take over more. I venues. thought you might say that, Martin. <laughs> <laughs> and we've got a security team, so we're the only venue in the UK that has a completely in-source security operation. Um, and that's worked brilliantly under our under our new security manager. He's done a great job, and the team there have done a great job. We now provide that service to the Trent University Students' Union. We're now doing some outdoor festivals. So, again, I, I think that model that we made with, with Merch, where we brought it in-house, realised we were really good at it, so why not sell that service to other people? You know, I think that will now apply to catering. It will apply to security uh, and potentially you know, other areas, maybe. But those, those I see as huge growth areas for us. Um, yeah. So, so for me, it's about you know, let's grow, let's continue to grow. And then personally, you know, I, I, I love this job. Been here for probably too long, um, but I, I see, you know, I've, I've had opportunities to go elsewhere, and I don't want to because. This 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 venue and this job is just for me the perfect combination of live entertainment, I sport because I love sport, the community aspect of what we're here for that we are here to do good, we're here to drive all those cultural, socio-economic benefits. You know, it's it's it, it, it you know what what we do in there in that in in that arena is is fantastic, but actually we just have this wonderful team, and I think for me. You know, I, I plan to be here for a few years yet. And then the goal for me is to make sure that when I step away, that actually nobody notices. Um, because, <laughs> because I've built a team under me and around me that actually can then take it on and do it even better. Yeah, I love that. And I, I sensed, obviously, just only meeting you once before, Martin, when, when you spoke at Nottingham City Business Club. Um, I, I might be wrong here, but I, I sense there's not this lot of great ego at play here. And that very statement that you said at the end that you would leave without really be, that being noticed is just a, a very humble but a wonderful thing to say. That and you you talk a lot about team throughout this this podcast, and I think that that com, that came shining through when I saw you speak, and I, and I think it's come shining through today. And I think what a great legacy actually that you've been part of building something amazing with your team, 
but that you can walk away from that and it, it doesn't need you to continue that journey because of the work you've done with other people by building an amazing team. And you can sit back in retirement in Nottingham and visit the venue. And, and what a great thing to do to sit there, not no longer having to work till 11 o'clock on Fridays and Saturdays, um, but enjoy it. But know that you played a part in something amazing. And, um, yeah. you know, it's just brilliant. And to hear your excitement and enthusiasm throughout today like i did when i uh, saw you in april it's just it's just fabulous a fabulous success story so far and um i very much look forward to seeing what you're going to be doing to celebrate the 25 years in 2025 and getting involved with that and anyone else around the nottingham area who's listening to this um uh, should do the same really but uh hey martin yeah. thank you thank you hugely for sparing your time uh to share that journey with anyone listening to the podcast episode and uh i wish you wish you well for the future and might bump into you at nottingham arena a panthers match or a, a gig or something <laughs> and, absolutely uh, yeah yeah we'd love we'd love to see you know that, that that for me is one of the big things that we want to do with our 25th anniversary is you know there are still people who don't really know enough about us who don't know what we do and who haven't set foot in the building and that's one of our goals is is to get as many people as possible who, who don't know what we do and never been here through that door on that 25th anniversary. And we've got some fantastic events lined up. But for me, the really exciting part of that will be seeing people step through the venue, through the doors for the first time and just marvel at it. Because once you get in the venue, the place just is awe-inspiring. It, it's it's fantastic. And being able to sell that, you know, I saw that BMW did an advert a few years ago, which talked about selling joy. And I, and I, I, I loved that. I, I came in, I came marching into a leadership team meeting and said, look, that's a brilliant, like, that's what we do. We sell joy. And <laughs> what better, what better product is there to sell? Yeah, no, absolutely. And if you'd have seen my daughter's face when we went to the last Panthers match, that was a complete vision of joy on her face. So, <laughs> yeah. I said, well, I think it, it was joy for part of, well, for the most part, not always. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's, it's it's a great industry to be involved in. It's a hard industry to be involved in, and, and there, are, there are real challenges, but um, I wouldn't swap it for the world. Hey, fantastic. Hey, well, listen, Martin, as I said, thank you hugely for appearing on the Leadership Mindset podcast series and wishing you well for the future. Thank you very much. If you want to explore your leadership mindset in more detail, why not complete our free leadership diagnostic at thetonybrooks.com and subscribe to this podcast to join us for future podcasts.